0: Hi, everyone. I'm Fraser Cain. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy news journalist for over 20 years. This is the behind-the-scenes interviews with the people who are making the news. And uh, and today, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Hickson from the University of British Columbia. Paul, how's it going?
1: Very good. Thank
0: you. Now, the the question I always like to ask people is, is who are you? What do you do?
1: Uh, so I'm a professor at UBC in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And uh, so what I do mostly is astronomy and astrophysics research. But uh, as part of that, uh, I also work with the uh, development of uh, new kinds of instrumentation that, that can be used for astronomy. And so a lot of my time, particularly these days, is devoted to this instrumentation aspect
0: and what I guess brought you and your work to my attention is the announcement that the Liquid Mirror Telescope has seen first light. And I'll be honest, I wasn't keeping track of the Liquid Mirror Telescope. It was sort of the the, the first light was the first thing that I'd heard of it. And this is and that is not normal for me. Like I am normally in the weeds, play by play, excited about every design doc and stuff specifications document. But, uh, but yeah, this one came out of out of left field. So what is the is the International Liquid Mirror Telescope? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's the name of the project. And uh, so probably not too many people have heard about it. Uh, it's been uh, under development for for quite a while now. The, the history of, the, of liquid mirrors goes back quite a long time. And a lot of the uh, recent development work of that technology was done in Canada. Uh, both at Laval University by uh, Professor Hermano Bora, and then more recently by, by my group at uh, UBC. Um, at the same time, there was interest in Europe. And I know that Professor Bora had meetings with uh, Professor Surde at uh, Liège University uh, in Belgium. And they decided to go ahead and, and uh, to build a four meter type liquid mirror telescope for astronomy. And that started uh, even before I I got involved in the project. So, excuse me, I've got a bit of a clip. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, so I became involved in that project about uh, 15 years ago or so, Maybe maybe more recently, but of that order. And uh, at that time they had uh, in fact identified, uh, they found money to to build the project, to build a telescope, uh, identified contractors that would build it and uh, had found a site uh, in India. And there's an interesting story there. So it turns out that there's a company in Belgium, in Liege in fact, that uh, specializes in uh, advanced uh, optical uh, systems such as astronomical telescopes. And they uh, were building at the time a 3.6-meter telescope for India mm-hmm. that would be located in the uh, in Himalayas. And uh, since uh, Professor Surday was uh, also at Giesh University, it, it made sense to... Uh, for Amos, this company, to build the liquid mirror telescope that they wanted. And uh, and so a deal was struck with uh, Aries. This is this uh, aria Bada, uh, Institute in, in northern India. that it's, it's like a government research institution that uh, has uh, telescopes and operates them and uh, has a, a number of staff, faculty members who are astronomers and also uh, support students and so on. So they had uh, this 3.6 meter telescope being built, and several smaller telescopes. And so it made sense to uh, locate the the ILMT at that site. Mm,
0: Right. So describe the instrument.
1: Yeah, so I should start by describing an astronomical telescope. Uh, For ground based optical astronomy, well, even for space based optical astronomy, you need to collect lots of light, lots of photons, and focus them onto a sensitive detector. And so uh, that begins with either a large lens or more often a large mirror to collect the light and focus it. And uh, there are different ways of doing this, but the simplest way is to use a parabolic mirror that gets all the light down to a sharp focus, at least at the center of the field. And uh, so the usual way to do that is to grind and polish a large glass mirror or several smaller glass mirrors and connect them all together with computers so that they act like one single large mirror. And the, the issue that you're faced with is that the surface of that mirror has to be accurate to, to a fraction of a wavelength of light. Something like 10 nanometers is typical. And that's pretty hard to achieve. Uh, and there's an additional problem in that even if you make the, the mirror with that accuracy you have to keep it that way right that accurately even as the temperature changes and uh, and so on and and so that's why conventional glass mirrors are, are relatively expensive they work really well but they're, they're costly
0: yeah I, I have a, a refractor and, yeah. and I've, I've owned both. Yeah. And I much prefer the refractor because I don't have to collimate it. Like I, j- I love being able yeah. to just take the thing out, put it out, look through yeah. it and see a nicer v- view of the night sky. But when I had a, a reflector, I would have to go and, and fire a laser down inside of it and, and make sure that everything is lined up again. And then few, you know, a few months later I would have to collimate it again. And, uh, and definitely you can see the, the, just whatever uh, bolts are loosening, uh, the mm-hmm. mount is shifting and the thing is getting a little bit out of alignment. Gravity is working inevitably on it like it does on all of us.
1: Yeah, that, that's the price that one pays for the uh, you know, the larger collecting area that one can get with it with a reflecting telescope. The, the refractor is nice as well, because it doesn't generally have a central obscuration. And, and so you get actually a slightly sharper image,
0: right? You don't get that secondary mirror yeah. Exactly. Right in the middle of it. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So anyway, um, one way to uh, make a parabolic mirror that it's a little bit simpler, but has of course limitations is to rotate a liquid. And uh, this was understood all the way back to Newton. Hmm. And uh, the problem was that the technology wasn't really available to do this sort of thing, to get an accurate surface and, until quite late, quite recently. And so it was Professor Bora in the 1980s that resurrected this idea and and started to to look at some of the problems that you have to make a parabolic reflector with a rotating liquid. So first, it has to be a shiny liquid, and and so mercury is usually the the liquid that's used. But you have to uh, protect that surface from vibrations which would cause waves to form on it, and You have to keep the speed of rotation highly accurately constant. So the idea is that you have this container, this dish, and you pour some mercury in it, and then you rotate it at a constant rate, about a vertical axis. So it has to be pointing straight up. Right. Gravity is pulling downward. And so you get a balance between gravitational and centripetal forces that pushes the liquid into this kind of a dish-shaped parabolic form. And it does yeah,
0: follow a, a parabolic, like a perfect par- parabola?
1: Yeah, it does to pretty good accuracy, in fact, very good accuracy. There's, a, there's slight deviations because the uh, gravitational vector is not... They're not parallel. They're not exactly parallel all over the surface of the liquid. They actually point towards the center of the Earth. Right, but you've got
0: mountains and the Earth's geode causing issues. That's really interesting. Yes, Okay. Yes,
1: and then there's other factors, Coriolis force, tides raised by the moon, and so forth, that can all (laughs) kind of slowly, slightly disturb the surface. We, We wrote a paper back in the 1990s analyzing all of these things, and found that none of them matter. used <laughs> for the types of mirrors we were talking about. So,
0: so none are causing more <clears throat> than a few nanometers of,
1: yeah, the biggest of, the, effect, of the perfect parabola. Yeah, yeah, the biggest effect, you know, due to the fact that the the Earth is a sphere <laughs> is that uh, there's a very small change in the focal length of the mirror. It's still a parabola, about slightly different focus. And that change is about 20 microns in the uh, focal length for the ILMT mirror, right, right. And you know, we just adjust the focus to correct right. for that. And, right. Yeah. And and all the other things are, are much much smaller than that. It would,
0: it would be it would be fascinating if you reached a point where the gravity from the nearby Himalayan mountains was such an issue that you would have to compensate for that, that would mean you'd made a very sensitive instrument.
1: Yeah, it actually went into our calculation, we had to we knew what the focal what focal length we wanted for this mirror exactly eight meters and that's the way the telescope was designed the corrector lens was designed all for this eight meter focal length and so the question is what speed do you rotate the mirror at to achieve that focal focal length well there's a simple formula and it's got the acceleration of gravity in it and so you need to know what's the acceleration of gravity at your observatory and so well geophysicists publish uh, maps and tables of uh, the uh, gravitational anomaly for various places on the earth and so we looked this up and found what it was for this part of the Himalayas where the observatory sits put that into the uh, refinement of the uh, gravitational constant into the formula and calculated exactly what the rotation speed should be and it all worked. (coughs) focus properly
0: so you mentioned early on the other big downside is that it has to be fixed you have to run perpendicular to the earth's gravity so you're only looking straight up
1: exactly yeah we're, we're looking straight up but we have a fairly large field of view it's just about as big as the full moon and that's provided by uh an optical corrector, which is a bunch of lenses, five of them, in fact, that remove the off axis aberrations that you're familiar with, uh, such as coma, stigmatism, all of these things. And the corrector that that was designed for this telescope actually does more than that. Uh, It uh, straightens out star trails and I have to explain why that's important, and it gets into the details of how the telescope is actually operated. But the combination of this gives us sharp and a pretty large field of view. And so as the earth turns, then you know, the telescope, which is looking straight up, is pointing in different directions uh, in the universe. And so we, we see everything that is in a strip of sky that passes overhead of the telescope and that's something like 120 square degrees that we can observe without moving the telescope at all
0: and straight up is the best place to look anyway i mean you're the farther you are absolutely. away from the atmospheric haze the better yeah. the zenith yes. is the is the least amount of possible atmosphere that you can be looking through so it's yeah. very That's fortunate. absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's a that's one of the benefits of this type of observing. There's another benefit and that is with a conventional telescope, you know, a fraction of the time is spent moving it around, pointing to different things and then you know, getting it focused and whatever has to be done, acquiring the field properly and then starting the, uh, the recording of the, uh, the integration of the, the uh, camera. Whereas with a liquid mirror telescope, in principle, all you have to do is to turn it on at the beginning of the night and just let it go, recording data constantly Um, you don't Hmm. have to point it, you don't have to worry that it's going in the the right direction or anything. Uh, You just let the rotation of the Earth scan the sky for you.
0: So do you get a, like, are you taking exposures? I'm trying to think like... uh... So,
1: you know, with some of the liquid mirror telescopes that we built, we were able to uh, write software that would just continuously read out the uh, detector. So the detector is a CCD camera, It's like the kind of thing that you have in a you know, in an electronic uh, 35 millimeter camera, for example. And it, it's this chip of silicon, pretty large, you know, about uh, about that big. <laughs> and uh, in it, for for the camera we we have at the island T, there are uh, 16 megapixels, so it's 4,000 by 4,000 pixels approximately, and So normally the way you operate these detectors is you have a shutter in front and you would open the shutter for some time, let the light fall on the detector. And when it falls, it it creates electric charge, which gets stored in the silicon. And then at the end of the exposure, you close the shutter and you send electrical signals to the, uh, the CCD chip. To shuffle that charge, move it sideways outwards towards an amplifier where it's measured one charge at a time. So 16 million charges, one after the other, are all measured. And that's stored in the computer and used to construct a digital image. Right.
0: That that would see and analyze. That's how you take a photograph with
1: a digital camera. Yeah. That's the normal method. Right. But we can't do that because if we did, we wouldn't see stars, we'd see star trails. Because during any reasonable length of exposure, you need to expose for, for some time in order to, to see fainter objects. And oh, because so you can't, you just track. Already, you can't yeah, track. You can't track the you cannot, telescope. You cannot track. No, right, okay. It does not track. Not mechanically. So we, we track the CCD electronically. So the way this works, um, let me see... Um,
0: but you're just That's dumping a, you're essentially yeah. real time dumping all the photons all the all the electrons out of your detector and then just storing them elsewhere
1: sorry, yes so imagine that this is the detector okay it's actually square but this is what I've got here yeah <laughs> so we oriented so that the stars as the earth is uh, rotating, the stars are moving sideways across the detector okay and as they move across the detector, if we just had a long exposure, you would just see a streak. You'd see a star trail, with lots of star trails. And that's not what we want. So what we do is we clock or send these electrical signals constantly to push the charges along the detector. So at the same, trying <laughs> to get this in the right place there, at the same speed that the image is moving, Okay, so remember what's happening. The light is falling on the detector and every photon that hits makes a little electron in the, in, the, in the chip there. And we want to push that electron along at the same speed that the image is moving so we don't get it smeared out. Yep. And so that's the, the operating mode that we use. It's called time delay integration or TDI
0: and and sure. so I guess the advantage of this then is like you can't overfill one detector and have it no. spray out into the nearby cells yeah. in the detector. Well, and, you can if the star's bright enough. <laughs> right. OK. <laughs> but you are essentially taking one long exposure and then recreating at whatever. You're just gathering all of the data that is that is falling into the telescope. That's... Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I sort of think about like when I do astrophotography you know, you have to fine tune the exposure time, depending on what the object is, you, you know, you don't want to, if you record too long, then you'll blow out certain parts Mm -hmm. of the of the image. But if Mm -hmm. you record too short, then you may not get enough useful data. And so you sort of have to balance that for each object. And so will this technique work for like a really long something very faint, but also something very quick? Like, is it just all things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The exposure
1: time is actually fixed. It's the length of time that it takes for the star to go from one side of the detector to the other. Right. And because that's how long, you know, the, the electrons are getting generated. That's how long the light is falling on the silicon. And for the LMT that's about a hundred seconds, 102 seconds roughly. So that's our exposure time. It's fixed. Um, That's enough to uh, that you have to have a really bright star to saturate the detector in that time. And there's not very many of them in the sky. So we don't have too much of a problem with that. Um, It's long enough that we can see reasonably faint objects, like 20 second magnitude or something. And then we can co-add data from one night to another. So we observe the same strip of sky over and over again. And each night, And so we we get a series, we get this long strip of image and and we can align it and add it to that from the previous night to to effectively double the exposure time. Or at Hmm. three nights, that triples the exposure time so you can see fainter still.
0: How how many nights will the same spot in the sky remain in your detector?
1: Yeah, well, because the earth is going around the sun, the stars rise about four minutes later each night so there's this four-minute shift every night. Uh, the, this little strip is going to be shifted by four minutes. It'll come along four minutes later. But that still leaves you know, several months where there's a lot of overlap where you can do this co-adding to, to get uh, much fainter. That's um, really
0: interesting. Um, so now, you know, it's a four-meter okay. telescope. Um, how does it compare optically to a similar four-meter class um say mirror telescope with its secondary system and then and then how does it compare with adaptive optics because i'm i'm assuming there's no way to do adaptive optics for it on its, on its
1: uh, mirror yeah we, we've thought about adaptive optics um it's tricky but it, there are ways that you might be able to do it but it is quite complicated and adaptive optics systems tend to be pretty expensive Uh, And we're looking for sort of a low cost alternative to big complicated telescopes. Now for the question, how does it compare with a conventional mirror? Uh, We did optical tests with a six meter liquid mirror that we we built here uh, near UBC and found that uh, as long as we protected the surface of the mercury from wind, that the surface was accurate to about 10 nanometers which is as good as any conventional glass telescope. So the, the surface accuracy is actually very good, but we have to protect it from the wind. And part of the wind is just due to the fact that the mirror is rotating. And so it's entraining wind just by, well, just by virtue of its own rotation. And that is enough to cause little waves to appear on the surface of the mercury. So we have to protect it against that. And we do it by stretching this very thin film of optical quality mylar over the whole mirror. Hmm. It actually rotates with the mirror. So you're looking through the mylar when you see the reflection in the mirror. So that fixes this problem with waves and, and gives you a very good optical surface. But there is a penalty. Some of the light scatters off that mylar, it gets reflected. It's not anti-reflection coated, And so we lose a little bit of light because of the mylar, it's it's something like uh, 15, 16% or so. And as a result, it makes the liquid mirror behave like it's slightly smaller in terms of its like collecting ability. Um, not a lot smaller, like the four meter is probably something like uh, 3.8 meters or three point six somewhere in that range. I mean that's still so, one of
0: the bigger telescopes in the world. So it is, yes.
1: And in fact it's the largest telescope, optical telescope in India at the moment.
0: And I, I love this idea that you're essentially re-grinding your mirror every night. Just by turning it on, you are you are creating yeah. what, what would take a team of of optical engineers in Tucson uh five years to do, you do it in, in, you know, with one flick of a button and a, and a few minutes for the motor to turn up. How much material is are you using? How much how much uh, mercury is
1: is, is the, happening? the layer of mercury is uh, right now on the on the island T is about 3.5 millimeters thick. And uh, the t- total volume is something like 50 liters is, is what we're using. So the mirror actually just rotates day and night. We just leave it running Mm. until, you know, at some point it's collected enough dust that that we decide, well, it's time to clean it. Uh, It's kind of like re-illuminizing telescope mirrors. You know, you do that periodically to improve the reflectivity. Um, If we see that our uh, reflectivity is degrading because of dust collecting on the mirror, then we just stop it, pump off the mercury, clean the mirror, Pump the mercury back on; it's all nice and shiny and fresh, hmm. and start the mirror again. So, does, do the, does the does the dust
0: float to the top of the
1: mercury? Well, the dust actually collects on top of the mylar. Right, and of course. So, yeah, and so we're we're going to do some experiments to see if we can very carefully blow some of the dust off using compressed air without damaging the mylar. Um, that's part of the engineering tests that, that will be done during the summer in the monsoon season for the for the island tea. but normally we just leave the mirror running for a month two months at a time and just
0: open it up when when you've got clear skies
1: yeah so the the the, the building is quite a bit simpler as well because you don't need a rotating dome we just have a, a, a hatch on the top of the roof that rolls back slides out of the way to let the light come straight down where it's collected by the Primary mirror and then set up to the detector.
0: So what what is the best job for an observatory like this?
1: Yeah, it, scientifically, the best thing that it can do is uh, surveys. So we're, we're not we don't have the capability to point to any old object in the sky, your, your favorite object, for example, um, because generally, it, it doesn't go overhead at, at our observatory. So the kinds of science that are done is to look at everything in that strip of sky and see what we can learn from it. So it's a pretty large strip of sky. There are tens of thousands of galaxies. There are thousands of quasars. Uh, There are lots of variable objects. And so all of those things are accessible to us. And we record the data continuously each night. And so you have this big data set and then you have teams of astronomers looking at the data, doing different projects, different uh, studies using those data. So the kinds of things you can do, for example, I mentioned that you can add the images together to get fainters, to see fainter objects, but you can also subtract the images to see what's changed from one night to another. And that's a good way of identifying transient sources, things that are variable. Uh, things like supernova, for example, uh, variable stars, um, even planets transiting around stars and producing small uh, occultations. Uh, anything like that, that, that is a time variable, can in principle be, be studied by a telescope like the IOMT.
0: So it, it, it really sounds like sort of a, a light version of the Vera Rubin Observatory, that you're yeah, doing yeah. this time domain astronomy look at it for three nights, and you might, you'll detect an asteroid that moved through Mm -hmm. your field of view that would be useful for follow on observation or a supernova that is starting to appear over the course of of one night from from the next night and a lot of the same kind of discoveries can be made with this instrument as well as as with with Vera Rubin, but you're in the northern hemisphere, while it's in the in the southern hemisphere.
1: Yeah, so the Rubin telescope is, is very powerful, very flexible. And it has access to a, a very large area of sky, and which is good, but but it's also bad in the sense that, well, it can look anywhere. So it's not going to spend a lot of time looking at one little strip of sky over and over and over again. That's the kind of thing that we can do, Yeah, we have, that we have to do. And so let's suppose you find something interesting in this strip of sky. Supernova goes off, let's say. So there's a 3.6 meter telescope right next door, a conventional one, where we can just relay that information to the observers on that telescope and they can point to it and follow it up. So this telescope is good for finding things and many of those things can be followed up with conventional telescopes.
0: That's that's really, that's really interesting. Um, Now, you said that right now, it's a it's a four meter telescope, but UBC has actually worked on a six meter version of this same telescope? Yeah, Yeah, it's not exactly the same
1: telescope, but it's a a similar thing. So as part of the uh, development of the technology of liquid mirrors uh, at UBC that that started in the early late 1980s, early 1990s, we built a series of mirrors of increasing size, starting with about 2.7-meter diameter, and then a 3-meter mirror that uh, that was sent to NASA that they used to look for space debris for seven years uh, at an observatory in New Mexico. <clears throat> and then um, we were able to get funding, my, my research group, to uh, see whether we could extend this to larger diameters. I mean, what's the limit going to be? And we decided we would try to make a 6-meter telescope now, the amount of money that we could raise uh, is not enough to build a full-blown astronomical six-meter telescope on top of a mountain in a remote part of the world. Right. But, so, uh, And people would be crazy to give us money to do that because it's such new, untested technology that we have to demonstrate that the thing actually will work before you can do something like that.
0: But what is your sense in terms of of the scale? Like to go from a one meter telescope to a five meter telescope is orders of magnitude in cost, To just maintain Mm -hmm. that level of, of optical quality as you grow the size of the mirror just gets orders of magnitude more difficult. As you have a larger pool of mercury, and spin it up, how do you think the costs will increase?
1: Yeah, so you need a, a larger uh, more expensive, more stable air bearing to support that extra amount of mercury. You need to build a bigger dish. Those costs scale. Uh, and but you're starting with a relatively small number. So even though it goes up, everything goes up if you're trying to build bigger telescopes. But we're below the curve because of this uh, fact that, that our surface gets formed automatically. We don't have to have this super high precision machining and so on. Um, one of the things that we discovered is that as you make the mirror bigger, well, um, the focal length of course gets longer for a given uh, rotation, for a given F focal ratio or F number if you like. Uh, and so the cost of the building would go up. And so there's these other factors that you have to consider, not just the cost of the mirror itself, but all of the rest of the uh, parts of the observatory. Now, one thing that we found too that would limit uh that that might limit the size that we could build on the earth is these waves due to the wind and so on and so we we hit upon the solution of the mylar Uh, we know that that works for six meter we think it would work for eight meter would it work for 10 meters probably would it work for 20 meters well we don't know Hmm. but uh I'd like. i to, I'd like to the, find out. <laughs> oh, there's, there's the a lot of things? there's a lot of
0: background noise coming from from your room. I don't know if there's. It sounds like someone's like doing dishes or something in the background there.
1: Yeah, I'm just gonna close
0: the doors here. So. Yeah, that would be better. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. So 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 let's, so let's start to consider the the future and possibilities of this. So where do you think? I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense like, like, you say it's low cost, if I wanted to build a four meter telescope, how much cheaper do you think this costs compared to a traditional four meter Newtonian reflector?
1: Yeah. Well, the ILMT is about one-tenth of the cost oh. of the 3.6 meter that's next door. Wow. So it's cheaper, but, you know, you have to realize that it's more limited than yeah, the well, 3.6 meters.
0: Yeah, well, well, we'll sort that out in a second. Don't worry. We'll get to that. The good, we'll, we'll fix the more limited because I'm sure you've got ideas about that. So then let's say we go up to, say, an, eight, an 8.1 meter, like something that's equivalent to the Gemini or, the, or you know, parts of the Very Large Telescope. Do you think that that one tenth cost continues to scale up, or does it even get better?
1: Yeah, we even did a study actually for an eight meter telescope, and uh, the we went through a fairly detailed engineering process and costing process, and yeah, it's still roughly one tenth. You end up with most of your money is being spent by on a very large, complicated camera, for example, and, and less money on the telescope itself. So you have to look at the entire project budget when you do something like this. And so we were looking at a, a wide. This was even before the barrow Rubin Telescope. We were looking at a wide field, eight meter telescope that would have sort of a several degree field of view, uh, just paved with CCDs. And yeah, the camera. The camera costs more than the telescope. <laughs> okay.
0: Right, which is fine, right? Like yeah. if you so if instead you you spend it, it's ninety percent on the mirror and ten percent on the on the detector, and now it's it's ten percent on the mirror and ninety percent on the detector. I still think that that right. still gets you in the, in the right place. So, what do you think right. are the are the upper limits of this? Like, you know, the biggest telescope that's under construction right now is the European Extremely Large Telescope. It's going to be thirty nine meters. There was the overwhelmingly large telescope, which they scrapped that project because it would cost, you know, one billion um, dollars, and that would have been a one hundred meter telescope. And they figured that's the ultimate limit—like a one hundred meter telescope. You're now gravity won't let you go any bigger than that. So, what do you think are the are the actual limits of Mm. of this?
1: Well, uh, to me, the most exciting prospect for uh, future large telescopes would be liquid mirror telescope on the moon. And uh, Roger Angel had the same idea. Yes, and I've read the, I read the paper, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you got a NIAC study thing. for that. We did, yeah. yes. yes, two NIAC grants actually. Yep. And uh, then that was followed up by the Canadian Space Agency to, to look again at the, the details of the engineering and how you would do that. But the moon has a lot of advantages. So there's no atmosphere, so to speak. And so we don't have to worry about waves on the mirror mirror and so on. You couldn't use mercury because it would freeze, but you can can make ionic liquids, which is kind of like liquid salt. They don't evaporate and you can make uh, liquids that are liquid at quite low temperatures. And that would be forming the surface of the mirror and then you can evaporate silver coating on the surface after it's been formed and is already spinning, and that gives you your reflecting surface. And yeah, so so that study that we did was uh, was quite interesting, and it identified a number of scientific uh, drivers, if you like, for for this type of observatory. You could build a 20-meter telescope at the lunar pole. You could, in principle, build a 100-meter telescope at the lunar pole. And uh, it's just a a question of of cost. But the fact that the liquid mirror is a lot less massive than a conventional telescope mirror um, means that the the cost to put the stuff Onto the moon is lower than mm-hmm. trying to transport a conventional or parts for a conventional telescope there.
0: And does the south pole of the moon make the most sense?
1: To us, it did because um, we we're, were mostly interested in the infrared part of the spectrum because we want to look at distant galaxies and there the redshift moves most of the energy to the infrared, and so the telescope needs to be cool. Right. And. So at the south pole of the moon, there are permanent shadows in some of the craters. So you could place your observatory inside the shadow, and it would cool down naturally to a very low temperature, just like the James Webb Space Telescope is is doing. And then you could power it by putting solar collectors on a little peak not too far away that is in permanent sunshine. And so you'd have this cold observatory, but a s- stable source of electrical power year round, and uh, it would be quite a, a powerful combination.
0: Um, so back to Earth for one for one second. Um, yeah. So you know we talked about the about the size limits, and as I was starting to imagine bigger and bigger telescopes, you started to shift to other worlds. Um, do you think there's a? I mean, okay, so like a like, if I have like a really nice, say, 14 inch telescope, it's actually going to not give me a much clearer view of really or sorry, it's, it's like, if you have like an eight meter telescope, and you compare that with my 14 inch telescope, the resolution is really limited by the app, the Earth's atmosphere, like at a certain point, no matter how big you make your telescope, you're not going to get a better view to the distant universe. And that is just that's just the, the atmosphere is the is the limiting factor. So if you made a six meter 10 meter 20 meter, you're going to run against that limit. So let's talk about your ideas for adaptive
1: optics. Okay, sure. Yeah, so you absolutely have to use adaptive optics for uh, ground based astronomy, with telescopes that are larger than a few meters. Or so and uh, <clears throat> so we thought a little bit about how could we do this with liquid mirrors? And at the same time, we were also thinking about, how could we defeat the limitation of having to look at the zenith always? And so you could imagine that that the, the telescope is normally pointing straight up, that the mirror is rotating around this vertical axis. And you put your detector there and you see what's direct. Now what would happen if you were to move the detector sideways a little bit? Then it would see light coming and glancing off at a bit of an angle and coming up and hitting the detector. So you would be seeing a different part of the sky. And by moving the detector, it's almost like pointing the telescope within a, a certain right. limited range.
0: I mean, they do that with spherical telescopes like Arecibo, right? The exactly. Arecibo was a sphere, and so you could move the detector around and then you're yes. just pointing the telescope. Yes. But in this case, you have the tyranny of the parabola.
1: Ah, okay. So you're completely right. I mean, Arecibo has a spherical aberration corrector to correct for the aberration introduced by the sphere. And then they could just over a limited range, they can, they can track objects and that works really well. corrects the resulting spherical aberration. It's it's a bit com- complicated to visualize. Yep, yep, yep. No, I get it. But, I get it, but though. But this but is it's, the idea.
0: Right. So essentially, you 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 have a corrector lens that is that is turning the parabola into a sphere, I'm sure you've got some some, some kind of aberration, but it gets you pretty close.
1: Yeah, so th- the way that works, is that you place this sort of corrector lens, optically conjugate to the primary mirror. So in other words, you have another lens that makes an image of the primary mirror on this other lens. And then it has a, a certain shape, somewhat similar to uh, the schmidt corrector, that Makes the parabola look like it's a sphere, and, and then
0: and how big is this? How big is this part of the machine compared to? Yeah, the, it's,
1: it's it's not terribly large. So maybe a tenth of the diameter, less okay, than that, even a twentieth of
0: the diameter. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you, so you still so have can, to grind a a lens, but it is sure. Yeah. Can so, you do so it, can it on you, computer? I mean, I think about like with gravitational lensing people take the image of distant galaxies, and then they re, you know, they they use it on computer, they'll sort of pull it back apart. Is there a way mm-hmm. to, to do that as well? If you've got if you're off axis off yeah. of your instrument, yeah, or the better just do it with a lens? Well,
1: so the, the, it, it's easier to do it with the lens, partly because uh, with reflecting tub, uh, systems, you have to worry about obscuration and things like this one, mirror yeah. getting in the way of another mirror. Whereas with a lens, it's a little bit simpler. Yeah. And yeah. so we actually designed a complete optical system that would allow an eight meter liquid mirror telescope to track over a field of view of, uh, now, it, I think it, it was a few degrees. And at the same time, once you have these lenses, now you can do adaptive optics. And so included in that are is a deformable mirror, two deformable mirrors, actually.
0: So- so, so you would have like a secondary deformable mirror mm-hmm. that you would be able to perform, have the pistons underneath and perform the adaptive mm-hmm. optics on the secondary mirror. And in that case, you kind of want a bigger telescope. Like
1: you- yeah. So it turned out that the eight meter was a pretty good size eight meter telescopes. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> All, you know, sort of in, in kind of like a, a fly's eye type of configuration. Uh, all with these adaptive optic systems. And they would track objects as they came near the zenith. they track them for, for a while, for maybe 30 minutes or so, and then they go and they pick up another object and track it like that, mm-hmm. all with these moving, complicated lens systems and adaptive optics. And then if you want to be even more ambitious, you, Which can, I combine, do. you can combine the light from all of these individual 8-meter telescopes to a single point, And if you uh, are following the technology that uh, like James Webb is using, using. Uh, yes, that's, that's part of it, but it's, it's a little bit more complicated because at least the Webb telescope can point and track without having to change its primary mirror. This is a little bit more like the optical interferometer. Uh, used at ESO, for example, the the VLTI system, where you have underground tunnels and moving mirrors to equalize the distance that the light has to travel from every mirror to get to the center, which is a requirement for you to get really high-resolution images. And so, uh, in principle, you can combine the light from all of these eight-meter telescopes coherently and achieve the resolution that's comparable to... uh, uh, something like uh, a 60 meter telescope.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so you are, you're, you're making an interferometer with all of these, these separate, these separate yeah, lenses, which yeah, is, which is yeah. great, or using them individually. What about using them? Like, like the, the issue is just like, how can we get more of the sky? And so mm-hmm. can you go bigger with the detector? Does that, how far can just having a bigger yeah. detect you get you with being able to see more of the sky.
1: Yeah, so our our wide field eight meter design, I think had a three degree field of view. And that's kind of pushing the limit, right, of of what you can do. But if you want to cover a larger area of sky, you can just build more telescopes, because they're relatively inexpensive compared to conventional telescopes, you could put one at every 10 degrees or every three degrees of, of latitude on the Earth. principle and then zenith
0: is zenith is
1: somewhere different for everyone exactly
0: right and then you'd be scanning
1: with simultaneously with all of these beams
0: yeah finally someone is is not afraid to get to get very ambitious i i find i usually have to push people out of their comfort zone and they're like "No, no 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 it's this is a safe place you know, money is no object, the checks in the mail, let's get creative, but you have already gone gone way ahead uh, on all of these. What about a mirror? Like, you know, you've got this, this sheet of mylar that's covering the liquid, the liquid and is degrading the optical quality a little bit. If you're bouncing the light from some distant object off of a mirror, are you back to the even if it's a flat mirror? Are you back to having to essentially grind that mirror perfectly.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I get this question all the time people ask, why don't you just use a big flat mirror that you can steer to reflect the light down to your telescope, then you could look anywhere. Yeah. And the problem is, well, that would work, except the cost of making that mirror would be orders of magnitude more than the cost of the liquid mirror telescope, because you have to make the surface optically flat. And you have to keep it optically flat. Even as you're tilting and the gravity is changing and the temperature is changing, it's just really difficult and really expensive.
0: And so you might as well grind a mirror of the size that you're hoping and just call that a telescope instead. Yeah, yeah. 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 So then, I mean, You know, we've gone for flights of fancy, and let's talk about sort of what you think is actually going to happen. So, so you've got first first light just happened in in India. So, Mm -hmm. uh, how is the like? When will people start to see some papers coming out of some of the research that you're doing?
1: Yeah, probably not. Well, there'll be papers about the technology, but uh, science results probably won't be till next year. So right now, they've in fact just stopped the mirror because the monsoon season is here. And it has to be all of the telescopes get shut down during the monsoon because the humidity is close to 100% and it's raining a lot. And then uh, everything wakes up again in late September at the end of the monsoon. And so we're, we're planning to uh, restart the telescope uh, probably in October. We want to do some uh, adjustments to the corrector lens, uh, and that will be done uh, in early October. Once that's all done, uh, we start up the mirror, we do some more alignment te- checks, engineering tests. And uh, once, once that's completed and we're happy with the image quality, then we just start collecting data. And in the meantime, between then and now, the, the team is busily working on the software so that they can be ready for this stream of data that will come once the telescope starts science operations.
0: And we got like today, we got the third release from the Gaia mission. Yeah, and it was yeah. this giant dump of 1.8 billion stars in the Milky Way and so on. And, and, right. and it, will you probably go in the same way and just like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, like just release all of your data yeah. and then let the, yeah. the research community start digging through it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll release the data. I think we're still discussing whether there should be a proprietary period, but if there is, it would be very short. So we plan to make all the data available publicly, and uh, also probably some of the software that we would use to at least. So we would make pre-processed data available, so the instrumental effects have been removed. So, are there any other
0: shapes? Are there any other situations where spinning liquid metal? I mean, are there any variations on this idea? You talked about the moon. Is there anything else out there that? That you think might make sense that you guys have considered
1: uh, yeah there have been some concepts proposed for say free-flying telescopes um, and you might wonder well if it's free-flying but in space there's no gravity so how could you make a parabolic mirror and the idea is that you have a solar sail that would constantly slowly accelerate the telescope that would provide the equivalent of a gravitational force and then you would rotate it to make a dish and it would then be looking in the direction in which it's going basically and uh, you could make quite a large sort of parasol uh, that way with a a large collecting area Um, now none of these things have been studied in great detail Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. nothing comparable to what we did for the lunar telescope
0: but the acceleration by a solar sail is equivalent <laughs> to the the acceleration of gravity. Thanks yes. Einstein. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, you li- literally have co- you've thought of everything I am. I am so stoked on on this idea and, and what's and what's coming. So, so then if people want to keep track of, of the team and the project, what's the best way for people to see what you're doing?
1: You're probably just go to the website, it, it'll, it'll get updated Periodically, and uh, you can just Google International Liquid Mirror Telescope, and that will give you. It'll pop up the uh, the website in Belgium, uh, which is the, the main headquarters for the project.
0: Fantastic, wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was uh, really eye opening and exciting, and I I was not expecting the uh, it to go to the places that it did, and I'm really glad that that you have. Deployed this telescope and are working on future and even bigger versions of it. Especially the one that's going to be on the moon. That sounds great. So, uh, and the and the one in every, you know, at, uh, perched around the world to give us that full real time version of the of the sky. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: It's a real pleasure. Thank All right.
0: You. Take care. Bye. <laughs>